Welcome to Frontline Church South OKC Sermon Podcast. Each week we will have new sermon content from Sunday mornings, both video and audio options. Please visit south.frontlinechurch.com for more information. If you have any questions, need prayer, or have any other needs at all, please email hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. Go, hey, good morning. Hey, so sorry to break up a good thing, uh, but while you're finding your seats, I wanna say welcome. Thanks for being with us. Uh, hey, if we've not had the chance to meet, my name is Andrew. I get to serve as one of our pastors here, and it is so good to worship with you. It's good to be in the Word with you this morning. Um, hey, I realize that what we do on Sundays is unique because we're constantly talking to two different types of people. Uh, we have a lot of people in the room that have been walking with Jesus for a long, long time, uh, people that are submitted to Jesus, his ways, his word, and actually want lives that are oriented around him and his kingdom. And so on one level on Sundays, what we're doing is we're talking to those people. We're talking to people who want to follow Jesus, want to orient their lives around Christ. And yet at the same time, we're also talking to people who are just trying to figure out what they think about all this, where they land with Christianity, where they land with the Bible, where they land with the word of God and his ways. And I just wanna say to you, if you're here and you're not really sure where you land uh, with Jesus or Christianity, we are honored by your presence with us. We wanna invite you in to watch the way that we live, to listen carefully to what we say. Uh, We'll be the first to tell you that we're far from perfect. In many ways, we're a hot mess. Uh, but we really do believe that Jesus has grace for us and that he's changed the way that we see the whole world. And so we just wanna invite you in to come and maybe see if there's something about our life and our uh, claims that Jesus is making that is compelling to you or something that challenges some beliefs that you have. So we're really glad that you're with us today. Uh, Today's gonna be a lot of fun. So um, let's go ahead and jump in. And here's what I wanna do. I want to ask you in honor of the word of God, and as a symbolic way of saying we wanna be people under the word of God, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Maybe hold out your hands, and let's receive this today. The scripture for today's sermon comes from 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 9. The word of God speaks to us. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man to not have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, Each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. This is God's word to us. Thanks be to God. You guys can grab a seat. If you think it's hard to hear that text, just imagine what it feels like to preach that text. 
Uh, honestly, I, I actually am excited about preaching this. So let's jump in and let me pray for us. Father, would you meet us today in a passage that has been abused and twisted and misused? Um, there, there is untold damage and pain in the room that I can't even begin to know or understand. And there's also hopes and dreams and desires in the room that I can't begin to understand. And I realize, Father, that we're all coming in carrying different things. There's nothing I can say today that is sufficient to serve your people. There's nothing that I can say today that is sufficient to really care for them and bring healing. So Holy Spirit, through your word, would you do that work today? I pray for real healing in marriages today. I pray for real freedom and singleness today. Honor to be given. I pray for an understanding of the word that corrects misunderstanding. We wanna hear truth and we don't wanna hear something that's false or off. So if there's anything I say that's wrong or off, would it be quickly forgotten? And we pray that your truth would, would rule the day. And not only rule the day, but we pray that your truth would shape our hearts and our lives, our singleness, and our marriage. So come and bless your people through this word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Tertullian, who was an early Christian theologian, and Ambrose, who was a first, fourth century pastor, were said both to prefer extinction of the human race to continual sexual intercourse. Pretty crazy. Origen, who was probably uh, not only an early Christian scholar, but maybe one of the most important Christian scholars in church history, he was so convinced of the evils of sexual pleasure that he took a knife and castrated himself, which is like incredible commitment and incredible stupidity. Gregory of Nyssa taught that God created Adam and Eve without any sort of sexual desire, and if the fall hadn't have happened, he believed that the human race would reproduce itself by some harmless mode of vegetation. Super weird. He needed a biology class or something. Uh, Jerome, a third and fourth century pastor, he was known to throw himself into thorny brambles whenever he began to desire a woman sexually. In fact, it's also said that he would take a a rock or a stone and beat his chest every time he had any sort of sexual temptation that rose up inside of him. Thomas Aquinas, who is one of the most important theologians of over the last 1,000 years, he viewed sex as the unfortunate means by which humans repopulate the earth. And to Aquinas, sexual intercourse was only acceptable as a duty, but not at all for pleasure. If you have to have sex, try not to have fun while having sex. That was Aquinas' approach, right? Do it without smiling, if you can. Uh, and then finally, at one point in church history, the church even limited the days of the week that you could have sexual intercourse with your spouse to two days a week for a number of reasons, holy days and the Sabbath. They're like, you can have sex, but only two days in a week. That's all that's allowed. Everything else is off limits. Suffice it to say that throughout the history of the church, there have been real moments of sexual restriction, real moments of sexual restriction. Now, fast forward to our own cultural moment today, and rather than being a culture that is restrictive around sex, the air that we breathe and the water that we swim in has, in an attempt to find more pleasure and find more joy, we've actually taken all of the restrictions off of sex, thinking that the more freedom we have, the more pleasure we have which is actually never true. The more freedom you have doesn't always equal more pleasure. But our culture has attempted to remove any and all barriers, any and all restrictions, and in fact, in such a way that they would see any restriction on sex or sexuality as highly damaging and dangerous to who you are 
as an individual. Culture talks out of both sides of its mouth about sex right now. On the one hand, our culture says, sex is everything. It's essential. It's like food and water. I need it to survive. I need it to express my unique identity in the world. If I can't offer that, then who am I really? Sex is everything. And yet, at the other side of its mouth, it says, sex is really no big deal. You can have it however, whenever, whenever, with whoever. It's just an appetite like getting hungry and you need to eat food or feeling the urge to use the bathroom, so just use the bathroom. If you have a sexual urge, just find someone and have sex with them. It's not that big of a deal. In fact, finding a sex partner for our culture is sort of like getting an Airbnb or shopping for a rental car. It's like just swipe right or left and then find the one that you like and then just go with that. And yet, sadly, all of the lifting of restrictions, all of the, you know, pressing the gas down on freedom around sex hasn't produced more thriving or more flourishing or more joy or even better sex. In fact, instead what we have behind all the Hollywood glamour of joy and unrestricted fun when two people just jump into bed together, we live with a lot of confusion. We live with a lot of shame and emotional pain and quite frankly, the more studies that you can find on this from non-Christians, people who don't even follow the way of Jesus, they're having more and more unsatisfying sex, sex that doesn't truly satisfy on a deeper level. And it's not weird, right? It's not shocking to us because in a culture that can't even define what is a woman or what is a man, why would we think that we wouldn't be confused about something like this gift of sex? Now, thankfully, we're not alone. No matter where you find yourself, if you're one of like more kind of a puritanical, prudish, restrictive around sex, or if you're someone that's like, no, just bust off all the freedoms, wherever you find yourself on any spectrum of confusion around this, I, I promise you that you're not as confused as the Corinthians were. And this is the gift for us that this church has been. They have continually been confused and continually have been wrong on a host of issues that we are often confused and wrong about. And as Paul addresses their issues, he is through the power of the Holy Spirit in a timeless way. He's actually addressing our issues today. So in light of that, I want you to understand the context of what we're dealing with so that you can really see and understand the passage that we're gonna work our way through. So two dual problems in Corinth around sex, two dual problems. And these are really interesting problems that you wouldn't think could go together, but they do. The first problem was a pervasive sexual immorality. And we've already talked about this. I don't wanna spend a ton of time on this, but just suffice it to say that there is a large group of people in this church in Corinth, in Greco-Roman Corinth in the first century, where the air that they breathed was just one of sexual liberation and freedom. We tend to think of ourselves as super sexually progressive or whatever, but a lot of our culture today still hasn't even gotten to the level of sexual freedom that the Corinthians had. They had uh, all these temples all over the city. In fact, you could go there today and see ruins of these temples, and every temple had temple prostitutes, and it was not a weird thing to on your way home from work, stop by the temple, and in honor and worship of the gods, sleep with the temple prostitute or more than one temple prostitute. That was a very normal Monday afternoon for you. This is how Corinth lived. Jesus had saved a lot of people in this church out of that lifestyle, but that lifestyle was still inside of them in some ways. So what happened is they were trying to grapple with, like, how do I follow Jesus and also engage with this sexual thing? And a lot of them in the church and Paul's addressing this in chapters five and six, they were still following Jesus, but also still visiting temple prostitutes. And Paul has to write to them and say, hey guys, that's wrong. That's actually not helpful, and let me tell you why. This pervasive sexual immorality. 
The second problem, and this is what he's dealing with today in chapter 7, is a very different problem. It's actually the other side of that spectrum. It's a spiritualized sexual abstinence, specifically in the context of marriage. In other words, you had not just a group of people that were saying sex is no big deal, just sleep with whoever you want. You also had another group of people that were saying sex, in fact, is a big deal, and it's such a big deal that it's inherently wrong. It's evil. It's unholy. It's, it's ungodly. If you engage in sex, married or not, it is wrong. Properly, this was known as asceticism, and what asceticism taught was this religious approach where you don't indulge in any pleasure, anything that is actually satisfying at all, and you do all of this in the name of spiritual maturity. So to be really godly, to be really holy, to be really mature, don't have sex with your spouse. That was actively taught in this church, and Paul is addressing that in chapter seven. So think about how backwards they were, and this is sort of like our culture today. You had the single people who are acting married and sleeping around, and Paul addresses that in chapters five and six, and then you had the married people who weren't actually sleeping with their spouse, and Paul is addressing that in chapter seven. So in light of this, here's what's powerful about our text today. Paul is gonna take marriage, and he's gonna take singleness, And he's going to elevate both to equality and hold them before us. And here's what he's going to say about both marriage and about singleness. He's going to say that both are profound gifts from God. And both of these gifts come with their own sets of advantages. Both of them come with their own sets of challenges. And both of them also come with their own unique sets of responsibilities. It's not like if you're single, it's harder than being married. Or if you're married, it's harder than being single. Being married and being being single is hard. And being married and being single is a gift. And being married and being single comes with a certain set of responsibilities and things that you're having to face. That's Paul's point. So without further ado, let's jump in and work our way through this really, really interesting passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. Remember, up till this point, Paul has been dealing with rumors that he's heard about the church And now what he's doing is dealing with actual things that the Corinthians had written to Paul in a letter and beliefs that they held or questions that they had. And from this point on, Paul's gonna now work through their letter to him and say, you brought up this issue. You brought up this conviction. You brought up this question. Let me answer you. So now concerning the matters about which you wrote, quote, this is their position. It is good for a man to not have sexual relations with a woman. Now, remember, this, th- this is worded really weird. It's good for a man to not have sexual relations with a woman. Uh, literally in Greek, it says it's good for a man to not touch a woman. You think, well, that's unrealistic to live your whole life to never touch a woman or for a woman to never touch a man. That's silly. But that's a Greek euphemism for how culturally today we might talk about sleeping with someone. When we talk about sleeping with someone, we're not talking about laying next to them and going to bed. We're talking about having sex with them. And that's what it meant in Greek to touch a woman. It's to sleep with a woman or to touch a man was to sleep with a man. So here's Corinthians' position. The Corinthians' position is it's good, it's right, it's the, it's the, it's the godly thing to do to not have sex, whether you're married or single. It's good to not have sex. So now Paul's gonna address that concern. Look at verse two. But... Because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Each man should have 
his own wife, and each woman her own husband. Now, if you're single in the room, that can sound sort of mean and unhelpful. It's like, hey, maybe you're single and you're trying to get married. You're like, I've tried that. It doesn't work. I can't just go have a wife or have a husband, you know? It doesn't work that way. Well, that's not what Paul is saying. He's not saying go acquire a spouse, go find one out there somewhere. He's saying to have your spouse is another euphemism for having sex with them. He's talking to married people, and he's saying, hey, because sexual immorality is a thing, if you're married, you should have sex with your wife. If you're married, you should have sex with your husband. I think the CSB translates this verse in a really helpful way. Here's how it says, or here's how it translates it. It says, but because sexual immorality is so common, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman should have sexual relations with her own husband. So he's not saying, go find a spouse. He's saying, have sex with the spouse that you have. Does that make sense? Okay, some of you are like, amen. Some of you are like, where is this headed? Oh, it's, it's gonna get wild. Here we go, verse three, you ready? The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come, again, come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Here's the first big umbrella, the first thing I want you to see. This is the call to steward the gift of sex and marriage. The call to steward the gift of sex inside of marriage. Now, how is it? How is it that Christians are called to steward this gift from God that he's given to husband and wife in marriage? Well, let me make a few observations from our text today, and this will be the bulk of our time. First, I want you to notice the posture in marriage that God is commanding here. Notice the posture in marriage that God is commanding here. In my opinion... The text that we're looking at today is one of the most abused, misused texts, and it has actually produced enormous amounts of pain specifically on the part of men against women in marriage. Uh, Husbands, look at me for a minute. If this is a verse that you use to wag in front of your wife and make demands on her body as if she is a piece of property to you, you are absolutely misunderstanding and abusing the heart of what Paul is trying to say here. If you ever bring this verse up and try to play the role of the Holy Spirit or throw it in your spouse's face, you're taking this verse and you're twisting it and you're misusing it and Paul would wanna have words with you about that. This is not something that's elevating your rights and your status and what you get and what's owed to you. In fact, I love what Gordon Fee says. Paul's emphasis, it must be noted, is not on you owe me, but on I owe you. The emphasis of this passage is on what I, as a spouse, owe my spouse, not on what she owes me. The emphasis is on what I should be doing to serve her, to care for her, to meet her needs, to hear from her what her sexual desires are, her sexual needs are, what what brings her satisfaction and joy and pleasure, and then for me to serve her in that way, as long as it's not asking me to do something that's against what scripture says or something that I'm uncomfortable with, the goal here is that I put myself in a posture of service 
to my spouse. So don't wave this verse at your wife. Don't act like you get to control her as if she's your property. She's not. She's your wife. And this actually, this verse doesn't work if there's not mutuality in husband and wife relationships here because this is not elevating one status above the other. It's elevating both husband and wife saying, you should serve one another. And this shouldn't shock us at all right? This shouldn't shock us, shock us at all because everything about Christian marriage is about the husband laying his life down for the wife and the wife laying her life down for the husband and responsive, the submission, love back to her husband where the two together are saying, I want to serve you. I want to care for you. I want to offer myself to you. It's everything about marriage, including our sex. This is what is being called here. So here's how you think of it. A husband can't use this verse to make demands on the wife and the wife can't use this verse to make demands on the husband. It only works if the husband is saying, hey, listen, it's not about me, it's about you. It's about your needs, your desires, your hopes, your fears. And then the wife is responding saying, it's not about me, it's about you. It's about your needs, your hopes, your desires. When you have both husband and wife doing that, you have the potential for what God is actually envisioning sex to be like in the context of marriage. If you're inside of a marriage and you've got the husband making demands on the wife, asking her to do things that she's uncomfortable with or things that are harmful or things that are sinful, and he's using this verse to prove it, you need to come and talk to one of your pastors and we will deal with that. But that's actually not at all what's being described in this text. So imagine what it would do in our church if husbands went to their wives and they said, hey, what brings you joy? How can I use my body to serve you? What are your emotional and sexual needs that are legitimate that I can meet? What, what, what brings you life? What, what do you like? What do you hate? I wanna, I wanna serve you with my body. Ladies, if you came to your husbands and you said, hey, what serves you well? What do you like? What do you not? What, what, what's right and good and what's, what's helpful for you? What brings emotional and sexual pleasure to you? I wanna serve your needs. When you have husband and wife doing that together, you have the potential for a level of beautiful sex that our world just cannot imagine because our world is inherently selfish and sex is just about me, my pleasure, my wants, and my desires. The Bible would have none of that. It's about the other person. Second, notice how countercultural this is, both for them then and for us today. This was breathtakingly countercultural in a Greco-Roman society like Corinth. Here's why. Because what Paul leads with is literally saying, husbands, you owe your wife something. She has rights and you owe her. In the first century, no one taught that. E equality was not something that was celebrated. It was not something that was talked about. In fact, the only reason why our Western culture values equality, and this is a longer sermon for another time, is because of this Judeo-Christian ethic of equality that we get from Scripture. Paul addresses husbands, and he says, actually, she has rights, and you owe her. That would have been breathtaking for a culture like Corinth. What? The, the wife has rights? Because in Corinth, you didn't have rights if you were a woman. You didn't have at least sexual rights as a woman. But according to Scripture, you're on the same level as your husband. This is amazing. This is also countercultural for us today, not for the same reason. For them, the shocking word in this passage was rights. They would have read rights and they're like, the woman has rights? Oh my gosh. In our culture today, the shocking word, and some of you kind of felt it internally, is the word authority. You do not have authority over your body. That's countercultural because our culture says, it's my body. 
It's my right. It's my pleasure. It's about what I want. It's about what I prefer. It's about what I desire. And the Bible is going to confront you and say, actually, your body is not your own. You've been bought with the blood of Jesus. And now he gets to decide and reorient everything. And now if you're married, your body belongs to both Jesus and your spouse. Live to please and serve them, not yourself. So the word that shocks our culture today is not the word rights. It's the word authority, meaning you don't have ultimate authority over your body. Your spouse does. That's shocking to us. Paul's saying, it's for her or him, not for you, not for your own desires, wants, and needs, but for them. Third, sex and marriage should be regular, not intermittent. You can't help but see what Paul's saying here, that sex and marriage should be regular, not intermittent. Now, some of you are like, hey, Andrew, are you going to define for us regular and intermittent? Absolutely not, right? I may be dumb, but I'm not an idiot, right? You already got me to preach the text. I'm not going to hang myself with it today. But you know what regular is for you, and you know what intermittent is for you. And here's what's interesting is you can almost hear it in Paul's voice. Did you hear how many caveats he gave to the only reason you shouldn't have sex as a married couple? Look at it again in verse 5. Do not deprive one another. Like, he almost wants to stop there, you can tell. Don't deprive one another. Do not deprive one another. And then caveat number one, except perhaps by agreement. Caveat number two, for a limited time. Caveat number three, that you may devote yourself to prayer. Caveat number four, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. An honest reading of verse five is like, Paul wants you to have regular sex if you're married. And he doesn't want you to have intermittent sex. It's okay to say amen, by the way. To those. You guys are like awkwardly quiet, like I'm your dad trying to have a sex talk with you or something. <laughs> hey, listen, I understand that in mar- some of you as singles are like, I wish I could have sex. Hey, listen, there's a lot of married couples that I know that, <laughs> thank you. Some of you singles want to have sex. Amen. All right. <laughs> you can say amen to that. It's fine. But here's the deal. There are a lot of married couples that I know that if you ask the greatest source of pain and frustration and sadness and hurt in their marriage is actually, actually related to sex. This is a huge conflict inside of marriage. And so I want to say to you pastorally, if this is a struggle for you as a married couple, hey, please don't hide that. Please don't pretend that you're in a different spot. It's okay to be where you are. Just reach out and get help. Like we have great resources that we can get you. If financially you can't afford it, we'll figure out a way to get you biblical counseling. We have pastors that love to serve you and meet you and figure out how we can get you the resources that you need. So listen, I understand that this, I'm not, I'm not making light or joking. Like if you have pain or struggle around sex and marriage not being regular and being really, really intermittent, reach out and get help. We want to serve you in that way. And then finally, fourth, notice how sex positive Christianity really is. All that stuff I said at the intro is Christians getting it wrong, but actually the true teaching of all of scripture, not just chapter seven of 1 Corinthians, is incredibly sex positive. Think with me about the culture at Corinth right now. They are massively engaging in sexual sin. There's a man sleeping with his mother-in-law. There's sexual immorality rampant across the church. And you would expect Paul to write a letter saying, hey, if anybody's lost sexual privileges, it's this church. No more sex for anybody, all right? Stop having sex. You guys are out of control. And yet Paul doesn't write that. He writes a letter saying, have sex. Have sex regularly. Don't not have sex unless you're gonna fast and pray. And then get back together and have sex again. Paul is very sex positive to this particular church. Why is that? 
Well, Von Roberts said it this way, while the Bible is against sex without marriage, it is also against marriage without sex, assuming sex is physically possible. And that begs the question, why is sex so important? Like, why does it matter? Why is Paul worried about it? Does he just care that a man or a woman has an org- orgasm and everything feels good? Like, what, is that the coordinate, or that there's an emotional connection? Like, why is sex such a big deal that the Apostle Paul in the rest of our Bibles is gonna elevate sex inside of the context of marriage and encourage it and call you to it and in some ways even command that you do it? Why? Well, our culture doesn't have a good answer to that question for the meaning of sex. And so allow me to go on just a bit of an extended tangent on why God gave this gift to us in the first place. Because I think that many of us, not just in our city, but in this room, couldn't give a compelling answer to the question, why did God give the gift of sex? Let me give you a few reasons. Number one, sex is about creation. I'm stealing this from Andrew Wilson, who is a British theologian. He had some really incredible observations about the entire structure of Genesis chapter one, how it's made up of complementary pairs that are distinguished from one another and yet work together in tandem to produce the type of life and creation that God intended. So let me give you some of these complementary pairs. Light and dark, day and night, heaven and earth, land and sea, sun and moon, and then male and female. That's all out of Genesis chapter one is these distinct things. Now think about this. We don't have one sun and many moons or two days for every one night. We have one of each. And we don't have the earth above and the earth below because that would be like a cave. And we don't have the sky above and the sky below because that would be like a gas giant that basically is what Jupiter is. But we have sky above and earth below. And the sky above produces rain, and the earth below receives the rain and then produces life from the rain. And I could nerd out right now, but in Greek, you have male and female uh, things being described, not just with male and female as biological sex, but male and female in creation, as in the sky and the earth, and they're working together. And I hope I don't need to paint you a diagram of how the earth above producing uh, rain and then the, the, or the sky above producing rain and the earth below receiving that rain produces life and how that relates to husband and wife coming together in sex and what God intended. A man's sexual organs are on the outside of his body by God's unique design and a woman's sexual organs are on the inside. The husband sends forth life and the woman receives it and carries it and nurtures it. And here's just a theological freebie for you that I think is amazing. Just as male and female are separated at creation with a view to being brought back together in a marriage, so heaven and earth, though temporarily separated by sin for now, will one day be reunited in a cosmic marriage in the new creation. When you have sex with your spouse, there's something profound at play that's so much bigger than just what's happening in the bedroom. It's painting a story of creation and even redemption. Number two, sex is about procreation. Though we often forget this in our modern culture due to the fact that we can have uh, sex without having babies through contraception and we can have babies without having sex through IVF, the way that God has actually designed, one of the core purposes of sex is so that children would be produced. And I know that some of us carry the pain of miscarriages or the the inability to have babies and it's horribly painful. But by and large, it, it still bears repeating that what God intended for sex to be 
is at least a way that humans are brought into existence in this world. Think about that. God could have chosen any other way to do this. He could have had storks deliver babies or have babies grow on plants or trees like fruit, but instead he picked the most intimate act between a husband and a wife and chose that as the mechanism, the means for which babies are brought into this world. Number three, sex is about worship. In the Bible, there's a direct connection between the number of gods that a person worships and the number of sex partners that they have. There's a unique connection there between the number of gods that you worship and the number of sex partners that you have. The Ten Commandments, in fact, both command exclusivity in our relationship with God and our relationship with our spouse. In effect, one of the commandments says, have no other gods but me, exclusivity. And another command says, have no other spouse but him or her exclusivity. And here's what's interesting is if you read through the storyline of scripture, idolatry is often portrayed as adultery to God. That when we worship other gods, we're being unfaithful at a core level. That's the feeling that God has towards our sin. And so here's what's happening in a marriage when we practice forsaking all others and remaining faithful to our spouse and engaging exclusive sex with just that person, saying no to all other women and no to all other men and just having sex with them. Here's what we're saying. We're actually practicing our faithfulness and exclusivity to worship the one God of the Bible alone. That is a powerful, powerful deal. Our sexuality reflects our worship. Number four, sex is about pleasure. Suffice it to say that God created certain aspects of the male anatomy and the female anatomy that serve no other purpose, reproductive or otherwise, than just sheer amazing pleasure. I'm not gonna tell you what those parts are because I'm a pastor, not an anatomy teacher, but you can Google that on your own time, right? Maybe do it in the company of other people or you can have a really weird Google search history. Sex is about pleasure. No amen to that at all? That's so weird. Are you okay? What's going on? It's about pleasure. God's not like, now just don't have fun when you do this. He made it to be fun and he made it to feel good. Number five, sex is about warfare. That's part of what God is trying to say to us through chapter seven. It's about spiritual warfare. In marriage, sex between a husband and wife is used by God as a primary tool for the married couple to fight against the sexual immorality. What was happening in Corinth is that married couples were trying to abstain from sex with their spouse, but then being overwhelmed by sexual immorality, and they were going to sleep with prostitutes instead of their spouse. And Paul's saying, No, sexual immorality is rampant. What the enemy's gonna do when you're single is try to get you to have a lot of sex. And when you're married, he's gonna try to get you to not have any sex unless it's sex with someone that you're not married to. And what Paul is saying is fight against the sexual temptation in marriage by having sex together. And then number six, and finally, maybe the most important, sex is about the gospel. Sex is about the gospel. Think of it this way. Sex and marriage is like a living parable, if you will, of the gospel that we celebrate. Here's what I mean. In marriage, we make promises. We forsake all others. We exchange rings. We celebrate with a meal. We share all of our worldly possessions. We take on a new family name, and then we have sex as a physical seal of our commitment to each other, trusting that out of it, God will bring forth life. Andrew Wilson says this. He says, each of these steps preaches the gospel. Jesus promises never to leave us or abandon us. We promise to forsake all other gods as long as we both shall live. He gives us a gift that seals the covenant, his Holy Spirit, and provides a meal for us to celebrate with the whole family, bread and wine. 
All his possessions become ours, and all our debts become his. We take on his name, we enter into union with Christ, and get baptized in water as a physical seal of our commitment, trusting that out of it, God will bring forth new life. Friends, sex is amazing. It's a gift that God has given to be celebrated, to be enjoyed, to be partaken in. It's something that inside of marriage, God is offering, saying, please steward this gift well. Now, if all of that's true, and it 100% is, what if you're single? Like, doesn't it feel a little bit like, hey, here's this amazing gift, but you can't partake? Doesn't that hurt a little bit? Doesn't that feel like God might be holding out on you or robbing you of something that you should have? If it's one of the greatest gifts that God has given us, then what about if you're single and you're actually being told in Scripture to not partake in it? Are you missing out on something that's absolutely essential for life? Well, the answer is far from it. And I want you to notice what the Apostle Paul is about to do because it's amazing. Look at verse six. Now, as a concession... Not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as myself, uh, as I myself am, as in single. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Here's the second thing I want you to see. This is the call to steward the gift of singleness. The second umbrella category is the call to steward the gift of singleness. Friends, please don't miss what's so obviously right in front of our faces here. That some of the greatest teaching that we have on marriage and sex comes from a man who himself was single. We serve a savior who himself was single. Some of the greatest teaching and church history that we have on marriage and sex came from predominantly single people. If you are single, you are not second class, you are not devalued, you're not less than, and you're not missing out on essential things in life. You're actually saying no to a profoundly good gift so that you can say yes to another profoundly good gift, which is namely being single for, for the sake of Jesus and the kingdom. Notice what he says in verse seven. He says, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Instead of falling into the trap of devaluing, uh, uh, overvaluing marriage and devaluing singleness, or then flipping it and devaluing marriage and valuing singleness, what Paul does is he elevates both to the level of gift from God with their unique responsibilities and advantages and challenges. This is incredibly helpful. It's Paul's urging you and I, if you're single, hey, why don't you really actively pray about staying single? Now, why would Paul do that, right? It is, it is worth repeating here, this end of the verse where he says, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, some of you as single people, you're sitting here and you're going, I'm burning with passion. I'm burning with desire. I'm burning with, with both sexual desire, but also desire for relationship and a spouse and all, all that comes with that. And that's not what Paul is actually saying. He's not saying if you find yourself in a place of burning with desire to have a spouse or burning with desire with sexual, uh, sexual desires that you should go get married because that's just 
core to what it is to being human, what he's actually saying here is when you have two people who are engaging in sexual activity again and again and again, but they're not married, Paul's saying, hey, you're burning with passion, just get married, right? So you have to dis- distinguish here what is actually like legitimate burning with passion where two people keep having sex again and again and should they get married versus someone who's just having desires to have a spouse or to have sex or whatever and what does it look like to maybe embrace your singleness whether for a season or for the rest of your life? Why would Paul encourage this? Well, here's what I'm gonna do. We don't have time to get into all of this and I know that if you're single, you're like, you're shorting me. Yes, I am a little bit and I'm sorry but we're gonna give an entire sermon on singleness coming up because chapter seven has, in my opinion, the best stuff to say in scripture about being single. So we will give a whole sermon strictly devoted to that. But for now, let me just give you two things that I think Paul wants you to see for why being single is such a big deal. First, Paul understood the benefits of single-minded devotion to Jesus. That actually in singleness, you're freed up in profound ways to offer more of your time and margin and gifting and energy to be used for Jesus and the kingdom and his mission in this world. Some of the most powerful people that have lived as followers of Jesus that have had the biggest impact were in fact single because they didn't have the burden and the the complexities of a spouse or kids where they had to answer to a certain level of responsibility, but they were freed up in such a way to maximize and utilize their singleness for the glory of God. In fact, some of the people in my life that have blessed me the most, some of the people in my life that have poured into me the most, some of the people in my life that have taken care of me the most were people that did so precisely because they were maximizing their singleness for the glory of God and the good of his people. And I just want you to see that like, if you say no to this good gift of sex so that you can say yes to using your singleness for the glory of God, you are blessed and you matter to us. That is a significant thing that Paul had a vision for and I pray more and more of you would have a vision for. The second thing that Paul would want us to see is that he embraced an eternal perspective, something that Christians in the West often don't have, which is he realized that we're on the front cover of this whole story. We haven't even turned the page. We haven't even started the chapter. We're on the front cover. That means I don't have to experience every single thing that there is to experience in this world right now to have pleasure and a life of meaning and joy. I'm just on the front cover, but a whole story is coming for me in the new heavens and the new earth. And when the kingdom of God is fully brought to this earth, there's a whole other set of pleasures and joys that I get to partake in. So saying no to sex isn't saying no to a life of meaning and significance. It's actually saying yes to what ultimately matters in this world. Hey friends, marriage and sex are just signposts. They're just pictures that will one day go away. And singleness will be the, the, the state that actually all of us as followers of Jesus find ourselves in the new earth. And that's because it's not just marriage that paints us a picture of the gospel, but singleness does as well. Brooks Waldron says it this way, marriage was designed to show off Christ's love and devotion to the church, but singleness was designed to show off the church's love and devotion to Christ. Singleness is uniquely designed to showcase the sufficiency and the superiority of God. So where do we go from here? Well, listen, in Jesus, no one is truly single. And in the new heavens and the new earth, no one is truly married. And so wherever you find yourself today, it's a gift from God, and he's calling you and I to steward it, not for our own sakes, but for the sake of either our spouse 
or the church that we find ourselves in.